and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Liz Westover, who is a partner and the national SMSF leader at Deloitte Private in Melbourne. Liz is responsible for the success of the firm's SMSF service, providing compliance and consulting services to the firm's clients. Liz has extensive experience in superannuation, having previously held positions at PwC and as head of superannuation at Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand. Liz has strong capabilities on the technical application of superannuation and associated tax laws. She is a regular commentator on superannuation issues with mainstream and social media and has authored blogs and articles on superannuation and related issues for many years. Liz has been heavily involved in superannuation policy development and advocacy, regularly liaising and consulting with government, regulators and stakeholders on technical, legislative and policy matters. Liz is a Fellow of the Tax Institute, a Fellow of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand and a CA SMSF Specialist. Liz, welcome to Taxiac. Thanks Robin. Pleased to be here. Great to have you here. So superannuation is not something we've discussed in detail on Taxiac, so it's great to have this conversation with you. Starting point, how many self-managed funds are there in the country? A lot and growing. We're currently at around 600,000 self-managed super funds and about 1.13 million Australians are using SMSFs as their retirement savings vehicle of choice. Increasingly popular. They certainly are and of the superannuation industry more broadly is about $2.8 trillion. So that's about 12 zeros after it. And 747 billion sitting in self-managed super funds. So a massive, massive part of the superannuation industry. About 30% of total assets in super are with self-managed super funds. Because people want the independence, the freedom to manage their own financial affairs? Uh, by and large, that, that is the main reason why people still have self-managed funds, is they want the control and flexibility that comes with those type of funds. Are there some members of self-managed funds, and of course they need to be trustees as well, who really shouldn't be in a self-managed environment? I'd say the answer to that is yes. Um, in actual fact, even if an SMSF is appropriate for a particular person at a particular time, it's an ongoing assessment. And in fact, they should be looking at it, trustees should be looking at it every year, and advisors should be asking trustees to look at it every year. Is this still the right retirement savings vehicle for me? And there will come a point in time where it won't be, and they need to take action to develop an exit strategy for the fund. And I don't want to turn this into a financial advice session because that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But clearly accountants can't even advise and have these conversations with their clients unless they're licensed. Look, that's right. That's right. Um, we used to have the accountant's exemption that said you didn't need a license if uh, you were recommending the setup or closure of a self-managed super fund. It doesn't exist anymore. So there is this advice gap that still exists. But it doesn't stop advisors giving factual information. Uh, I think it's an ongoing conversation that uh, that advisors need to have with their um, with their trustee clients, and what I tend to do with my clients is just raise the issues. And just because you develop an exit strategy doesn't mean that you think that they should exit now. That could be something that is 10 years down the track. It could be when they develop um, a mental incapacity or on the death of a member. So it's it's just it's an ongoing issue that you can continue to raise. You don't need to be advised to be talking about it. So if I can't advise you to exit or to set up a fund, I could say to you, you need to think about these issues. Absolutely. And yep. I think that's an advisor's responsibility to raise these issues with trustees on an ongoing basis. Tackling the issue about accessing money, I remember some years ago the ATA put out a publication to assist trustees and it was titled, It's Your Money But Not Yet. I remember that one. I thought it was very good. (laughs) Um, I still think that issue is an ongoing one where we continue to read of trustees who take money out for whatever reason, and it's often a personal reason, where they haven't yet met their conditions of release or preservation ages, etc. How do we educate members? I'm talking about the members of the the funds, that they really shouldn't be touching the money until they do meet a condition of release. Um, I think it's an ongoing process. and But what I will say is that every new trustee signs a trustee declaration when they become a trustee to say they understand those rules. So those people who are accessing their money inappropriately, I would question whether or not they did it necessarily did it in ignorance or whether it was a deliberate strategy. I need the money. I know I shouldn't touch it, but I'm going to anyway. I think it's also a case we end up with people in a financial situation that they didn't expect or anticipate. There's all this money sitting over here. I've got access to it in terms of physical access, I mean. I don't mean um, legal access. 
and I, I think in some cases it comes out where it, it's their last resort, but hey, the money's there. I think I think that's exactly the case. Uh, and when people think more holistically about their retirement savings, if they think that they're going to lose the the business or the family business, then that's going to impact on their retirement savings. So why shouldn't they be able to access their super to, to potentially prop up that business? Now, clearly that's the wrong thing to do, mm. but you can understand almost their rationale as to why they're actually doing it. Yes, I agree. If we have a look over the last 20, 30 odd years, there have been a lot of changes. And I think when governments come forward every election, they say, oh, look, governments have to stop tinkering with super, but right after we make the next lot of changes. <laughs> and it just seems to have been every 10 years or so pretty significant reform. So just to perhaps backtrack on some of this and, and fill in a bit of a pathway, 92, I'm going to use as our starting point, because that, of course, was the yes. start of the SG legislation, superannuation guarantee. 1993, and I very distinctly remember this, the introduction of the CIS Act, which brought in the idea of this regulated complying fund and a new set of standardised rules. Um, And since then, of course, we've been operating under those provisions. 2007, significant reforms made by Howard, the introduction of the concessional and non-concessional caps, the introduction of Div 293, which um, of course imposes a high rate of tax where you earn above a certain amount. And then more recently, the 2017 reforms, which um, had its own attention, seminars run very thoroughly right throughout the profession at that time, and we're still betting down those reforms, even though we're two years on. And don't forget the 2010 Stronger Super reforms, which was off the back of the Cooper Review, which is the the most massive review that the super industry had had at that stage. Um, Look, it has been massive amounts of change, and so I'm going, I actually thought it was really interesting in the last election is the the coalition went into the election saying, well, we're not going to make any more changes to super, other than this couple of things that we already had on the table. Um, But I think it's very easy to kind of say that you're not going to make any changes when you've already implemented all the changes that you were going to make anyway. So uh, interesting times. They are. Also, with uh, thinking younger people where, uh, look, they might be in their 20s, and retirement is 30, 40 years away. I don't have any expectation that when I retire there's going to be tax-free withdrawals or tax-free earnings if you're in pension made up to 1.6. I can see that being tinkered with again. So when you're making decisions now that impact on very, very long-term outcomes, I just wonder about, I guess, the, the cynicism that creeps in where we know that governments are going to keep making changes. So how can we have any confidence that the rules we're dealing with mm-hmm. now are still going to be there in 10 or 20 or 40 years' time? I, I think that's been a problem that's been around for, for many years now. Um, and it's the old, if I had a dollar for every client that said to me, I'm not putting any more money into soup because I'm not confident, I would actually be a, a rich person by now. So, look, I think it's a challenge for the ongoing government, but when you think about the fact that there is $2.8 trillion sitting in a highly concessionally taxed environment, it's not surprising that the government keeps tinkering at budget time. It's always at budget time. It is always at budget, yes. Yes. So you can see why they keep looking at it as this massive pot, you know, the gold pot, if you like, Um, but frustrating for trustees and members. Can you make any international comparisons? Uh, does any other country or, or jurisdiction have as robust a superannuation regime as we do? Because not many seem to have mandatory or compulsory super like Australia there's, does. There's a lot of different schemes around the world, but I'd have to say Australia's system is world-class and, and it is frequently quoted as being world a world-class retirement system. So we're very lucky. We are mm. actually lucky. And bear in mind, of course, people that I, I guess maybe a bit more older, when they began work, they didn't have compulsory super. So I won't reveal my age on air. However, <laughs> when I started, um, it was basically mandatory super. So there will be people, of course, older than me that they haven't always had compulsory super. But the, the, I think the really interesting thing, Robin, is we still don't have a mature superannuation system. Now, if we are supposed to go to 12%, we have still not seen the first person to have their first day of work at 12%. So if that was next year... For example, we are still 50 years of having a mature superannuation system. Where it's been the full 12% Correct. for the whole period. Where someone gets the full benefit of the full system for their entire working lives. And I can't even begin to contemplate what this looks like 50 years from now. Looking exactly five years right. out is difficult. Yes, yes. Yeah. Can we touch on some proposed policy changes? So what we've just basically reeled off then was some of the uh, already enacted and, and everyone's familiar with the reforms that are in place. But there are a number of bills before Parliament at the moment, or even in draft legislation, which is going to be looking at uh, some further reforms, even though the government said they wouldn't make too many more changes. I'll start with the Treasury Laws Amendment 2019 Tax Integrity and Other Measures Number 1 Bill. That's quite a mouthful. 
And Schedule 7 in that bill is going to stop employers from using a sales sack contribution to satisfy the SG obligations. I couldn't be happier about this measure and it's been one of my bugbears for many years working in the super industry. And the upshot of this one is, is that employers will not be able to use salary sacrificed amounts of super to satisfy their own obligation to pay SG amounts. So let's put some numbers to it just to illustrate. If we've got a $100,000 salary, uh, one option would be the employer just pays SG on the $100,000. Mm-hmm. If the employee puts $20,000 as a salary sacrifice concessional contribution into super, the employer might now pay SG on the $80,000. Well, twofold. Twofold, yes. And then further, there's a third option, and that is the $20,000 that's gone into super, the employer can turn around and say, well, that actually meets my SG obligations. Correct. So they're not even paying SG on the $80,000, they're using the twenty right. that comes out of the gross salary to pay the SG. That's exactly right. Which yes. morally has to be reprehensible. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I just think it is just so wrong and, and there are people out there doing it. Now, but to be clear, I think most employers do the right thing. And they would normally pay SG on That's what, the right. 100 or the 80? On the 100. They would pay their super on the on that amount and then if anyone wanted to salary sacrifice additional amounts, it didn't cut into the 9.5% super guarantee. But there are people out there who who will actually make the most of that. And I, I've had and personal it's experience allowed of that. Yes. That's correct. Until this bill gets passed, it's currently before the Senate, uh, that's exactly what, what can happen. I am, I've got to say flabbergasted at the start date. It's 1 July 2020, and this is the sort of measure I would expect to be applying from the date of announcement or at least a, a very close date following that, but to push this out for another nine months. And this has already been delayed, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I agree with you. It's, for me... It's been something, certainly when I was working at the Institute of Chartered Accountants, is that it's been our budget submissions for years and years and years, so it's not like it hasn't been out there and proposed and, and put forward for consideration. Um, so it is a little disappointing that it is a 1st of July 2020 start date, but I, I guess the other side of that too is it still isn't law. True. So, so maybe you need to give people the opportunity to get their systems and processes in place and have a forward start date rather than a retrospective start date. And bear in mind contributions have already been made. Indeed. Yep. Or maybe not made in this case. Yes. Yes. All right. The next bill is the Treasury Laws Amendment Recovering Unpaid Super Bill. Now, this has only just been introduced into Parliament in um, mid-September, and this is the SG Amnesty, take two. You could have knocked me over with a stick when this one came back on on the agenda. Um, And I've been a big proponent of the amnesty, and I've I've certainly spoken to Treasury and others around reintroducing the amnesty. I I did not think that this one would be reintroduced once it it had lapsed under the previous uh, parliament. But nevertheless, I think any initiative that is going to increase the amount of money that is going to end up in people's superannuation accounts is a good thing. So I know the argument against an amnesty is frequently that giving employers who are doing the wrong thing a free ride. My experience has been, yes, there are people out there doing the wrong thing, but there's also a lot of people out there that are making inadvertent mistakes. Um, And again, I've seen this with some of my clients. My family's had personal experience around these types of things where just mistakes made. So I think if you give people, right, here's your opportunity, get your affairs in order, get the right amount of money into super, and we won't impose the penalties and we'll allow you to deduct the, the contributions or, and so on. That's got to be a good thing. Politically, this was the major obstacle for the opposition, yes. that they thought it was rewarding recalcitrant employers who weren't doing the right thing. And I think it should be noted, because I've already received questions on this, if you did the wrong thing, say, two, three years ago, did pay the SGC, lodge the SG statement you're not able to take advantage of the amnesty now. And some have considered that is unfair. Someone who hasn't paid at all compared to someone who actually fessed up, they fare better. The government's trying to assist where the employee has never received any super. Now, in a situation where the employer paid it late, paid up the SGC a couple of years ago, at least the money's now in the super fund. So if we can draw that fine distinction, but I think it's really trying to recover super where it's never been paid. Look, I can see why people would think that that is a little unfair. If you've declared previously you're, well, you'd lost your deduction and you paid all the penalties and so on. But I still think if our end goal is to maximise retirement savings and get the money into super, and these are people that wouldn't otherwise have come forward, give them the opportunity to come forward. And if they don't, then this new legislation gives the commissioner 
Well, it will actually, in fact, it ties the Commissioner's hands on to how much he can remit in terms of part, part seven penalties. So, I, look, I just think it's a good thing. Yes, yes, some people are going to come off better than, than others, potentially. But like I said, if it's all about getting money into super, then it's got to be a winner. Agreed. Some key points, just in case there's any misinformation out there. The quarters covered by the amnesty is 1 July 1992 to 31 March 2018. So 1 April 2018 onwards is not eligible. And both the disclosure and the payment must be made between 24 May 2018 and six months after Royal Assent. So that's now been extended. It was previously only one year. Um, we don't have Royal Assent yet, so whatever that date is, it'll then be a further six months. That's right. Um, further points, just so everyone is um, uh, aware of what could be issues. It does deal with the concessional contributions cap. So if you had an amnesty payment going in, which of course took you over 25000 where the payment is made to the commissioner directly, then there'll be uh, effectively a blanket determination that the discretion has been exercised mm -hmm. to ignore the excess contribution. Where it goes directly to the super fund, the individual member would have to apply for that discretion, but it would be granted in this situation. That's right. So, so I think the message here is um, do your homework on how this will impact on your employees, and I think that will vary from employer to employer. Um, think carefully about whether or not you do make those payments to the commissioner or to the fund and just be aware there's uh, approved forms in which these declarations need to be made. So dot your I's and cross your T's if you want to make the most of the provisions of the amnesty. Those approved forms were available ahead of the election and then the bill lapsed on the 1st of July this year and the forms have been removed so they should be going up again hopefully mm. soon. One of the questions I often get is well what if the amnesty doesn't get across the line? Which is a question that was asked yeah, of course last time. That's right. And look, I, I, my position on that has always been is employers have a legal obligation to do this anyway. They are none the worse off. Uh, and in actual fact, they're probably better off than being caught. Now, with single-touch payroll, with the way super funds report now, is the chance of being caught is, is fairly high. There's greater transparency. That's right. So I would say be on the front foot with these measures, make the most of it, and you're going to get a better outcome than if you are found out and uh, end up in an ATO audit situation. You'll always do better with penalties to come forward than have them find you yeah. later. And what you often find with the tax office too is if they do an audit on one aspect of your payroll system, you can expect an audit on other aspects of your payroll system. Some have suggested because STP is uh, from 1 July 19 broadly, 1 July 18 for the large employers, that if there were historical SG breaches, then that couldn't be matched up. But Whilst it's correct to say single-touch payroll is a prospective reporting system, it does provide that profiling of the employer. And if they start to see that something doesn't look right, of course they can go back and look at prior years. So I don't think anyone should fall into this false sense of security that they wouldn't go back simply because STP has only just started. Couldn't agree more. Yep. Absolutely. If anyone is interested in the treatment of what happens if your employee has now... Um, gone over age 75 or doesn't pass the work test for example or they have since died or they have since become a non-resident these were all questions which i put to the tax office uh, when the first amnesty was on offer and that information is sitting in a blog article on our website called the sg amnesty q a uh, we will be updating that shortly for the current bill subject to when it gets through parliament uh, and i think that's a very um worthy exercise to do is to find out what happens there um, when you're going back to 1992 the chances are that all your employees are still going to be with you is um, is not not great so what I will say yeah. is if an employee has died so let's say you should have made an SG contribution and didn't and then they died and this is many many years ago nothing relieves the employer from paying SG just because the employee is no longer alive so in fact they do have to pay it but um, and I've traced all this through it gets paid to the legal personal representative so yes. you have to reopen a deceased estate. And I've asked some estate experts, is there any time limit on reopening very old estates? And they said no. So yeah, you could have had an employee who you should have paid SG in, in 2000 and they died in 2003. Um, you would need to go back, make the contribution for the, the period they're employed by you, pay it to their estate, and that all gets opened up again. Look, I, I think we're going to see some implications of all of this, uh, but my advice in, in situations for employers getting on track and making sure they do the right thing is generally you pay it to the tax office and then the onus is on the tax office to repatriate those monies to where they actually belong. So it's not a case of the employer is the one who's going to have to you know, run down or find legal personal representatives and so on. I can also see a case of once bitten, twice shy. 
and there might be a little bit of hesitation by some employers saying, well, it didn't get through last time, it may not get through this time, you know, we'll just hold off. And we've already talked about the risks of holding off, but I just wish there was certainty. I wish we didn't have to sit here for months on end not knowing whether or not this is going to become law. I uh, couldn't agree more. That's, yes. Mm. Can you comment on a recent bill which is um, dealing with putting members' interests first? Yeah, well, look, I, um, I'm a big fan of this piece of legislation and it did actually pass through both houses on the 19th of this month. So we'll be seeing this going to law. And this is all around default insurance, basically. So there are certain cohorts of people that you can no longer offer default insurance to. So they, they call it sort of opt-out insurance. Um, there's a few tips and traps around this one, though, but but fundamentally what they were trying to avoid is people in vulnerable situations, so young people, inactive accounts and low balances from their super savings being eaten away, uh, eaten away by insurance premiums. Which may not have been necessary for the policies to even be Correct. there. Correct. And look, I've been in this situation personally where I have had... Uh, money that was sent off to a default funding correctly um, and it was just eaten away by insurance premiums that I didn't need, didn't want. So um, I'm a big supporter of this one. There were some changes or some amendments to the legislation that covered off people in dangerous occupations and I think that was probably a good idea so that people who were in those high risk vocations weren't losing their insurance because they probably are the people who need it the most. Um, one of the things I think people in self-managed super funds in particular need to watch out for is where they've had multiple accounts. So they have their self-managed super fund, but they keep a small balance in the APRA fund for the purposes of retaining insurance. So they might have parked a certain amount of money. Under this legislation, those small balances might actually deem to be inactive accounts and the insurance ultimately cancelled because the, the account will be closed down and any residual amounts transferred back via the ATO to the self-managed super fund. Now, in situations like that, uh, they may find themselves unable to get new insurance or, or you know, restart those insurance premiums again. So I think there's a, a risk there for people who are just using those APRA balances for insurance purposes. But by and large, I think it's a good piece of legislation. Would we see that extended more broadly across the superannuation arena? So at the moment, the, the opt-out insurance has been really targeting the under 25s and the under $6,000 balance. But... I believe there's talk more generally, and particularly coming out of the Banking Royal Commission, that they're looking at maybe those rules being extended to where you have a low balance, but you're not necessarily under 25. Well, there's certainly the, the under 25s are 6,000, and the in, inactive accounts are the ones that are in at the moment. You can always opt out of insurance. There's the, You're not locked into it. It is just that it tends to be default. So you automatically get it unless you say you don't want it. And most people aren't aware of what's sitting in their fund from that perspective. Look, that's right. Um... You know, I think at some point people have to take some personal responsibility for what does actually happen. Says she who lost all her, you know, lost the um, some balance in insurance premiums. But nevertheless, I think we do have to take some personal responsibility. So you get your annual accounts. You should see that there is in some insurance premiums being coming out of your balance. Um, make a conscious choice to, to turn it off if you don't believe you need the insurance. I think it's one of those things that's out of sight, out of mind. And a couple of years ago, my fund moved to a, a portal situation where you can log in every month and see your balances and, and communicate with them and so on. The good thing is it requires me to change my password every month. So without fail, I have to at least go on once a month to see what's going on. And it actually forces me to look at it. And, you know, I'm pretty organised with my affairs, but I, I will confess yeah. that super is probably not something I look at every other week. Look, and that's the sad part about super. The fact that it is so intrinsically linked to super is people have this disengagement with it. And it's it's the age-old problem in our industry is getting people to take an active interest in their super. A lot of people see it as a compliance piece. They have to have it. It's part of being employed, so they're not actively engaged. Why should I worry about it when I'm, you know, when I'm young? I and can't I touch it anyway. Can't touch it till I'm 65 or, or retire, or whatever it is. So, I do understand to a certain point, but it is your future, and we are talking about large sums of money. It's probably going to be the second largest asset that most people own after the home. Yeah, and look, I think the other mistake people make is. They think that their super balance is so low, so they're, they're sort of disengaged with it. If, in the unfortunate circumstance, you actually have to have an insurance payout into your super, your balance suddenly becomes quite sizable. Um, I, I had a client quite recently who was in exactly in this situation of um, had a couple of uh, super fund accounts, smallish balances, but the insurance payouts on those after her passing 
meant that there was a payout of over a million dollars. Becomes very significant. It does. Another bill I want to raise with you, the Treasury Laws Amendment 2018 Superannuation Measures Number 1 Bill 2019. Another mouthful. This one has actually cleared both Houses of Parliament, and we are awaiting royal assent, but that cleared Parliament on the 19th of September, so we're a week or two on from that now. In particular, this, in its former life ahead of the election, did contain the SG amnesty, but we now know that's come back in a separate bill, so we'll put that to one side. But it's got three other measures, dealing with contributions relating to multiple employers, so two or three well-paid jobs, and each one is paying SG, and collectively it takes you over 25000 So you'll be able to apply for a certificate to effectively carve one or more of those employers out so you don't go over your 25000 cap. I don't have a problem with the measures, I think they're good. But the start date is 1 July 18. And it does acknowledge in the explanatory memorandum that because this is a voluntary arrangement, that the employer would go and get the certificate, give it to an employer, and they would renegotiate that instead of the mandatory SG, it would be paid as extra salary, then they can work it out between themselves. But I'm really struggling with how you would redo contributions made during 1819, which clearly have been and gone and bedded down. Um, it, it is quite interesting. I agree. I agree. And then you sort of got to wonder whether they're going to have... Um all the employers are going to make most of the SG amnesty. <laughs> they can't actually, can they? Because it's it's first of July two thousand and eighteen, so they can't even make the most of the amnesty if they haven't paid. Correct. Yeah, look, I, that is um, an interesting start date. I totally agree with you. But nevertheless, the measures behind it, I think, uh, have been a long time coming. They've mm. caused a lot of angst for a lot of people. I think there wasn't a lot of sympathy for people potentially in this bucket because, I agree. well, they're high income earners; they can probably afford it anyway. But it's unfair when mandatory legislation and contributions causes you to have a higher tax exactly bill right. than would otherwise be the case. Exactly right, yes. I found two groups of employees generally come within these provisions. One is the company director. So they're on a number of different boards which are mm-hmm. well paid and that causes yes. them to go over the cap. And the other one's medicos, in particular surgeons. That's exactly the two classes that I've identified as yes. well. Yes. Yes. And we typically see. So with the medicos, they tend to have their own practice and then they work at the hospital as well. So again, two employers. Yes. And having to um, make multiple SG contributions over the cap. Then a good measure. But look, practically, I'd expect that would be really a March 2020 quarter onwards because you need to have at least 60 days notice with the commissioner to get one of those certificates for an upcoming quarter. That's right. It take, it's going to take time, no doubt about it. Um, and I think the, what people need to realise here is it is not simply a case of going to your employer and saying, I don't want you to pay SG. Yeah. That you do, the person, the individual has to apply to the commissioner on their own behalf. They have to prove to the commissioner that they have multiple employers. They have to prove that the contributions from both those employers would cause them to have an excess concessional contribution problem. Um, and then you get a certificate that you then give to your employer so that they don't but they won't have a shortfall on their SG. That's effectively what that certificate will give them. So there are a few steps along the way. Absolutely there is, yes. Mm. And to your point, this takes time. So get onto it is is the message there, I think. Two further series of amendments. We don't need to go through these in detail, but there are changes to the non-arms length income provisions. If you've got uh, an expense that may not be on an arms length basis, e.g. a low interest rate or no interest rate, then the income relating to that asset could actually end up being treated as non-arms length income. Yeah, this one's being uh, it's causing a bit of angst in the industry at the moment because people really aren't understanding what it means. And I believe that the tax office will come out with some better explanations around how they view this legislation playing out in practice. Um, they had a crack at it when we thought the legislation was coming through previously. Um, I think it caused more confusion than it did solve uh, problems. So um, we'll be looking through the tax office to come out with more guidance. But in a nutshell, what this legislation means is even if you have arm's length income, if the expenses associated or incurred in earning that income are less than what you otherwise would have incurred, or in fact non-existent, if you're operating on an arm's length basis, then all of the income is going to be tainted and all of the income becomes non-arm's length income and taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. Now, the interesting thing is how this actually applies in practice. So if an accountant, for example, if I do my own accounts, do I have a non-arm's length expense? But then can I attribute that to income? Probably not. Whereas if I was a property manager and I'm managing my own property, then I could associate it with a particular asset. If I'm so not, not charging, charging myself, the I could, that you should be. It. And so the income from that property on revenue and on capital in theory, then becomes non-arm's length income and taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. So it almost seems unfair that the accountant gets the free ride, but the property manager 
doesn't. And I'm not sure that that's really what this is intended to... And the fund is actually saving money by not paying those expenses, necessarily. Correct. Yes. Mm. So I think we do need a lot more guidance from the tax office. That would be most welcome. But I presume there will, again, be further guidance post-enactment um, of this bill. Yeah. Look, a lot of that was really coming from, particularly from limited recourse borrowing arrangements where we had related party loans at 0% interest rates. That's really the sort of arrangement they were trying to capture, not so much the people just uh, undertaking normal activities. And speaking of limited recourse borrowing arrangements... That is the third schedule in this bill, which is basically saying that if you have an arrangement in place, we will take the amount of the borrowing involved and include that in your total super balance, which is an interesting concept to take a liability and treat it as your equity. Look, I believe this initiative was driven by the tax office because they thought there was a problem where people were going to withdraw money out of their super and then lend it back to their super fund. And I get that. I've always struggled with this notion where this covers everyone with an LIBA, including those who didn't pull the money out first to get under the 1.6 million cap to then contribute it back in, but not as a contribution, but in the form of a borrowing. So if you never actually withdrew it, it seems a little unfair. Well, and the, the strange thing too is if you're a high balance fund anyway, you're not going to be impacted by it because you were well over 1.6 anyway. So it's really people in that that kind of around that threshold amount that are going to be more impacted than others. Mm. Um, and the only people that are affected if you've satisfied a condition of release or there's a related party loan. So you would really have to question your circumstances and whether a limited recourse borrowing arrangement continued to be appropriate. All right, if we can now discuss some other measures which are really still on the pipeline. We know from this year's budget they're going to make it easier, supposedly, to calculate your exempt current pension income. And this is about actuarial certificates and, and whether you can use the proportionate approach and these sorts of changes. So without getting into a lot of technical detail here, do you think these changes are going to be worthwhile? Uh, absolutely. But they do put a lot more onus onto the advisors. So what the proposal now is that there's a lot more flexibility about which method you use to calculate your ECPI. Um, and administratively, one's going to be easier than the other. But administratively doesn't necessarily mean it's in the best interest of your client. So there does need to be an analysis of the fund to work out which method will give the best result for the client. Don't assume that administratively is going to be the best way. All right, so they still need to come before Parliament. Uh, We've got some measures where if you're 65 or 66, currently you can't contribute to super without passing the work test. And of course, you can't access the bring forward rule. Uh, You'll be able to do both. 65, 66, 67, it's just the same rules pushed out another two years. And the reason for that is they're increasing it with the increase of the age pension age. No harm, no foul on this one, I think, just as long as you understand that it does apply in those different age groups now. Wouldn't it be nice, A, to get rid of some of these age limits altogether, and B, if we've got to have age limits, streamline them? Because we've got so many different ages that are relevant across super. You think of the 55 under the small business CGT concessions. Um, which is now very out of whack with these ages that are moving up into the mid to late 60s. And some of the, sometimes the age applies on your birthday and sometimes it's your age at the beginning of the year or the end of the year. And it's, it, you're right, it's very confusing. Mm. Um, and it just seems sometimes some of these new initiatives that come in with super put so many thresholds and ifs and ends and buts around them uh, and then wonder why people get it wrong because mm. it is so confusing. Absolutely. Another rule, first year of retirement, you're 65 or 66, and you have under 300,000 total super balance, you don't have to pass the work test for the first year. My point exactly. Very confusing. People come unstuck with this one. Uh, I can see that the intent was there to help people with low balances. Um, I just think you've got another hurdle there for people to jump over and potentially get it wrong. In other words, the swimming between the flags at the beach, they're pretty narrow flags. Indeed. Yep. Increasing the maximum number of self-managed fund members from four to six. Now, this made it to a bill, and for those who aren't aware, the bill was amended on the day of this year's federal budget. The bill was enacted without this measure in it, and we've heard nothing since. So, it's future? Look, I understand it's still on the agenda. Um, Again, I, I don't really mind whether it's four or six. I understand it's a trust law issue as to why the complexities come through and as we know trust law is a state-based um, arrangement so it, you know there's some complexities around it and well, I believe it, in Queensland there's a problem because you can't have any more than four individual trustees of a trust that's it as I understand yes, yes. Um, six in the fund look it does start to get get a bit more unwieldy 
but but nevertheless four to six again no harm no foul i think blended families bigger families exactly accommodates that yes Sometimes. And there has been talk that this was actually both blocked by the opposition and potentially even put up by the government in an attempt to circumvent the proposed franking credit policy of the opposition leading into this year's election. Um, so joining the dots, if of course you have more members and some of them are in accumulation as opposed to pension mode, then it means the fund is now paying some tax and now it can use some franking credits that may have been disallowed yes, under Labor's policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, whether... This is linked to that and whether or not this would proceed uh, without that franking credit policy coming to fruition? Look, it's a, it's a lot of the politics around the legislative process and mm. even the fact, as you said before, Robin, those three measures that we talked about earlier being linked originally with the SG amnesty, that's why they didn't get across the line because the amnesty was effectively blocking it. Get rid of the amnesty, they get through, and now we're dealing with the amnesty as a separate issue. Yep. It's complicated. There was a proposal that self-managed funds would only have to be audited every three years if you met conditions A to Z. Oh, wow, did the industry come back on this one? And and, um, I I thought it was... um, It just didn't make sense to have a three-year audit cycle. um, For lots of reasons. For for lots of reasons, not least of all, it didn't cut down on expenses. The feedback from the auditors was saying, well, actually, it'd probably end up costing more because you have to go back and actually audit every year, notwithstanding you do it every three years. So the costs associated and the complexities in trying to get gather information from three years ago would likely have increased costs, not decreased them. And trying to stop trustees touching the money in 12 months is hard enough. Imagine a three-year period where they could Look, do that's this. that's exactly right. And to be honest with you, I was always of the view that I would still get my clients to do an annual audit anyway. Yep. Uh, perhaps no one in the profession would be terribly upset if this one stayed in the desk drawer. I don't think it will get across the line. What I would encourage either the tax office or Treasury or, or government to say is it's dead in the water. Please just confirmation. give everyone confirmation that it yep. will not be pursued. Yep. Early release of super. Um, just let everyone know there are still discussions about the circumstances in which you'll be able to access your super early. Nothing's been decided yet, but there is a discussion paper from Treasury on this and, and they're just throwing ideas around. So that's still sitting there in the pipeline. Yeah, look, and it is, it's always really interesting, this early release of super and the circumstances that would give, give rise to it. I mean, we already have something like 20 separate conditions of release. So, uh, again, is super is for retirement or death benefits? So how many more can we add to it? And I won't even touch the first-time super saver scheme. Um, it is certainly not something that has mm-hmm. been um, dominating our training sessions over the past year. Any comment on Labor's policies? Now, at this stage, who knows what's happening with those and whether they'll be resurrected at the next federal election. But my point without going through each policy, where they were going to lower caps and increase potential Div 293 liabilities, etc., was they were pretty significant reforms. Look, they absolutely were. And... What I have been saying in some of my presentations is be aware what those labour policies actually were because you will have had clients that acted on them. We thought Labor was going to win the election. The whole um, country did. It, the whole country thought Labor was going to win that election. So, um, you know, and I am aware of people who, you know, made investment decisions based on what Labor was going to actually do around their um, engagement in listed securities and so on because of the franking uh, policy that, well, ultimately didn't come off. So my advice is be aware of them, make sure your clients know that they are not law and that they're not on this current government's agenda. And, in fact, even Labor has sort of said we'll be rethinking what our policies actually are. And that includes that you can still claim a deduction for personal contributions because that's one of the things they're going to take away. Exactly right. Catch up concessional contributions. A reminder to listeners that these measures were enacted a couple of years ago but they really only practically take effect this income year. Uh, we have written a whole blog article on this subject and I encourage you to go to our website and look up the banter blog and the catch-up concessional contributions. Um, my point, Liz, would be that the cap is no longer necessarily 25000 That's right. It might yes. be as high as fifty this year. Next year it might be as high as 75000 The year after that it might be as high as 100000 And it's going to keep increasing by another 25000 And I'm being very loose with my language there and I'll come mm-hmm. back to tighten that up. But basically within five, six years, we're going to be sitting at a maximum of 150000 The cap is not automatically increased by your unused cap from a prior year. It's increased by the amount of excess contribution you make, but you won't have an excess contribution if the excess contribution is no more than an unused cap. Confused? So, very confused. <laughs> so again, put some numbers. Yeah. So last year you might have had 15000 SG go in. 
there's 10,000 a cap you haven't used. Now, if you put in 30,000 this year, this year's cap doesn't automatically go to 35, being last year's 10 plus this year's 25. It'll increase to 30, which is the 5,000 excess contribution you've put in this year. And if you only put in 30 this year, which uses five of the unused amount of 10, you've still got a further $5,000 you could carry forward for up to five years. So it does get a bit confusing. My advice to everyone around this has been document it, do yourself up a table, work out what your balance is and be very careful about what you're carrying forward and what you can actually use. And the other thing there is don't forget it's still linked to your super balance on the 30th of June in the year before you make the contribution. So if you are trying to roll forward and roll forward to ultimately make a big contribution, you want to make sure that you don't inadvertently get to the point where you are unable to make that catch-up contribution because your balance has grown. And the threshold here for this purpose is 500000 500, That's right, yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things you have to monitor on an, an annual basis just to make sure that you continue to satisfy all the criteria to make the catch-up contribution. And the other point, too, is that if you are making these big contributions, you actually have to have accessible income to be able to claim that deduction. Of course, because otherwise you can't generate a loss out of a super Correct. contribution. That's exactly right. Yep. And if you do make uh, an excess amount, then it becomes a non-concessional contribution and that could have other implications. Indeed. Yeah, so it's not, not as straightforward as you necessarily think. It does give rise to some potential planning opportunities too. So if you knew that there's going to be a capital gain in two years' time, you might decide you're not going to maximise your super now and maybe maximise it in that year. Exactly right. Mm. All right, ATO activities. Now, I want to discuss two things with you. One, and they're both very current pot issues at the moment. The first one is called the diversification letters. That's how I'm going to describe that. These were letters sent out recently by the ATO. In good faith, concerned about the high proportion of super fund assets in self-managed that were sitting in a single asset. And it was really just a reminder to trustees to look at their investment strategies and remind them that they shouldn't um, have all their, their eggs sitting in one basket, basically, and diversification is a part of the investment strategy. But unfortunately, the letters did refer to penalties. And I will share with you, I've heard of one situation where a trustee received this letter, panicked, didn't speak to their accountant first and actually sold a property out of their self-managed fund. Which is just heartbreaking, isn't it? It's, yeah. Yes, it is. Look, I, I think the intent of what the tax office was trying to do, will I say admirable, I think the execution probably could have been done a little bit differently and, and not particularly on this issue around diversification is even auditors can't tell a fund how to diversify. The tax office can't tell a fund how to diversify. Or what to invest in. Or, no, that's right. It is up to the trustees to make that determination for themselves. And if they believe that it is appropriate to have all of their eggs in one basket, which frequently happens when you have a property in a fund, that's fine. Do we draw a distinction between the self-managed fund that has 90, 95% of its assets sitting in, or, or wealth, I should say, sitting in business real property, but it's still generating enough income, it can pay its taxes, it can pay its fees, other expenses and, and pensions if need be, and the fund that's investing in, e.g. cryptocurrency, or which is much more high risk, uh, arguably, or something like a limited recourse borrowing arrangement where you've got that high risk of borrowing and then also you've got the issue with the um, the property being that sole asset. Yeah. Look, look, I think what the, the tax office was really trying to do here is you need to put a bit more thought into it. It's not enough to say you've considered diversification. They want a bit more evidence to say, well, what have you considered? So a strategy that says zero to 100% won't be acceptable. But it never has been. No. no one has ever thought that that was okay to say zero to 100 on all your asset classes. So look, what we're doing is if we have a client that has received one of these letters, uh, we are doing a new investment strategy and we are tailoring it to accommodate these these sorts of 90% or more in one asset class. And it's a paragraph in here to say, look, we've, we've thought about this. We genuinely believe that this is, the, this is effectively the right thing to do. We are aware that we have all our eggs in one basket, but given you know, they might be 20 or 30 years away from retirement. So property is a long-term investment. It fits nicely into their, their timeline. They don't really have liquidity issues and so on. So we've tailored a paragraph up to address those sorts of issues. But, but to your point about the scare tactics, and that's effectively what's happened. Um, and Maybe that, it wasn't that intended me. that way, but that's how it's been received. Indeed. 
and I, and I think that's that's the execution point. Yes, get people to think about these things, um, but be very careful on the on the scare tactics. Another issue that's come up is this two week late lodgement issue. So from the first of October, if a self managed fund is more than two weeks late in its annual lodgement, the status on the super fund lookup will change to regulation details removed. And the thinking behind this is that that fund uh, wouldn't be able to receive contributions. Now, it's perhaps a bit unclear from the ATO's wording. They say that an APRA fund won't roll over, con- um, roll over amounts into the fund and that an employer won't pay SG contributions. I'm not sure there's anything physically preventing them from doing so. So if the status of the fund changes to this new description, could it actually still receive those amounts? Or is it really just a warning back to everyone dealing with them that, no, we shouldn't be accepting those amounts because we've got some potential compliance problems here? I, I would suggest that there are a lot of APRA funds and a lot of employers that will not make contributions where that status has been changed to regulation details removed. Um, it, look, again, I think the, the execution on this one could have been a little bit different. It was a pretty quick announcement. There was really no lead time into this in, into this sort of 1st of October start date and no consultation as far as i'm aware no and look my preference would have been um look the, the tax office has a problem we've got an 86 86 on time lodgement rate so there is 14 percent of funds that are not lodging on time i i get that the tax office wants to do something about that i understand they haven't seen a lot of change in that that sort of on time lodgement for a couple of years so um what i would have preferred to have seen is if you were late if you didn't lodge on time you got a letter from the tax office to say we see you, you're late, and you have got, in two months' time, if you don't lodge, then then we're going to do this. So give people the warning. And time to respond. And time to respond, because things go wrong, things happen. Um, it's not a case of people just all the time forget. There's, so it's, a, you know, I think they could have taken a, a, a more of a pragmatic approach to this one, notwithstanding, I think that action does need to be taken to get that 86% lodgement up. Liz, I'm concerned that whilst they're trying to deal with or target or try and communicate with the trustees who are late lodging, this will have a flow-on effect to the employers who may see this and then, of course, have to contribute to a default fund in order to meet their SG obligations. So we could end up with increased and multiple default accounts being set up, which is more administration Mm -hmm. in consolidating them and more fees, etc. And also there could be an employer who... Yeah, looks at that and decides it's all too difficult to go and do the default fund and they just don't pay the super. So we've potentially got increased SGC issues coming out of this. Um, it should also be noted that once the status is properly restored, um, that can take up to a month for it to show That's on right. this particular lookup. I do agree that when you've got late lodgement problems, there is usually an indication that something else is going on. So a bit like the, the canary in the mine. And of the cases we look at where someone has been disqualified from acting as a trustee or there is a breach of the CIS Act, there is often, if not always, failure to lodge on time. So it's, it would be rare that you fail to lodge on time but nothing else is wrong. I, look, I tend to look at it the other way around, is things go wrong and so you have a year that might be lodge, late lodgement. If there is a number of years outstanding, then there's usually an underlying problem. Something's gone wrong and they don't want to face up. They tend to put their head in the sand and the years sort of go out and then there's the stress levels build and um, so on. So, um, you know, I think this sort of 86% on time lodgement, 14% of people aren't necessarily, it's not necessarily a, a problem out there. It's just they haven't got their act together. But there's all sorts of things that can go wrong is... There can be problems with administrators. There can be problems with auditors. All sorts of things, all best intentions can lead to these sort of late lodgements, which is why I think a bigger lead time would have been a better outcome. So maybe a bit harsh in its current form. But to your point too, I I still think that the APRA funds should have concern about this measure. Mm. Um, And exactly what you're saying about default super funds is they are now going to be forced to receive small amounts of money for a short period of time that someone's ultimately going to try and roll back over into the self-managed super fund. And even if they decide that that's all too hard because, let's face it, rollovers can still be quite difficult to process, is then the APRA funds have to maintain inactive accounts for a period of time. Which until ultimately they go act- to the tax office that's anyway. It. That's exactly right. Yes. I just feel we're at the beginning of what we can see as being inevitable and yes. really it's not about the employers, it's about the trustees and is there a better way of dealing with them? Totally agree.
Now, issues with spouses, so things like recontribution strategies, contribution splitting, are these strategies still alive and well? Absolutely. Uh, Contribution splitting is still alive and well, which basically means that any concessional contributions that go into a super fund, uh, you can make a nomination to split those to your spouse so it starts to build up their balances. And in a day and age of um, transfer balance caps and so on, uh, there is a lot of merit in trying to build up equally spouse balances in their in their super so that's an easy one clearly at twenty five thousand a year it's got to be it's a long-term arrangement you've got to get get in early um, but probably the other one is the recontribution strategy and it, and it really is it comes down to you've got to your ducks have got to line up you've got to have one spouse that is able to withdraw their money and the other one has the ability to put that money in so if one can pull out three hundred thousand and that other spouse is able to contribute into super that is a very quick and fast way to start rebalancing um, super fund accounts and getting them back into um, potentially two lots of 1.6 million dollar transfer really are encouraging younger people to go in search of an older spouse (laughs) don't know about that But the interesting thing is I ran some numbers on this one, and as have, have others, but if you took an example of a couple with a $3 million in super on retirement, one's got a, a big balance, say $2.5 million, and the other one's got a 500000 Over a period of 30 years, the difference in the earnings if, compared to if they had equal balances is about a $1 million. It's very significant. It's a significant amount of money just by rebalancing those accounts um, the tax advantages and so forth. So clear advantages, very demonstrable advantages around rebalancing your accounts. When we talk about balancing between members, I often think of the discussion that goes on about how women traditionally have so much less in super um, due to them stepping out of the workforce to raise families or even being on lower paid jobs. And so there's often this talk and focus and resources driven to try and encouraging women to put more into super. And I don't disagree with any of that, but I think there's a separate conversation that we can add on to that about potentially that role reversing, because increasingly we're seeing men stay home to look after newborn children, or they they become the the person who looks after the home while uh, the woman goes out to be the main breadwinner, depending on their, their roles, of course. So we may have situations where there could be men out of the workforce for extended periods of time, and also more generally the gig economy. So increasingly we've got people who aren't in what we'd call the traditional employee-employer relationship. They are their own genuine contractor. And they're out there building furniture or taking dogs for walks or whatever it is they do as part of gig economy, Uber drivers and so on. And so no one is looking after their super. They are responsible for it. And when you're on that kind of income and it's sporadic and casual and and often low paid, they may not simply be wanting to part with $25,000 a year to beef up their, their super balance. They'll be spending it on basic survival and living expenses. So I'm just wondering if over time we're going to see this whole new generation of those working in the gig economy, where it's not just a male-female issue, it's actually about anyone working in more casual work, may not have decent super balances when they retire. Oh, look, that's right. And I think any of these initiatives that are aimed at increasing retirement savings um, has to address men and women because you're right it's going to affect everybody um i think parental leave policies now have to address the fact that it's you know paying super for for the guys and the gals in um in equal ways um it's not you know i, th- I think women have come from historically they're the ones that have been the at-home parent uh, and they're the ones whose super balances have suffered the most so i totally understand and support measures that try to increase women in particular at the moment but over time you're right the focus is going to have to be equally on on men and women it should be everyone who doesn't have enough super yeah. not just a particular gender but yeah, yeah. that's why i'm not a particular fan of initiatives that would only deal with one gender i think they've got to equally apply yep i agree with you some recent cases that have really put a spotlight on the roles of auditors and in particular their liability and negligence cases and this is the the cam and bear case and Just to clarify, because our producer found that one quite entertaining, Cam and Bear Proprietary Limited is the name of the trustee company, but it rolls off the tongue as Cam and Bear. Um, there was also a separate case, Ryan Wealth Holdings. Now, very broadly, not going into the detail of the cases, they involved self-managed funds that invested in basically unsecured loans or private equities. Uh, the investments went belly up and 
the financial advisors in, in both cases um, were questionable in terms of the way they had conducted themselves. But what ended up happening is the trustees sued their auditors for the losses made by the fund. And in both cases, they were New South Wales Supreme Court cases, and one of them went on to the, the Court of Appeal, with the result that the auditor was held liable for 90% of the loss made by the fund. Where does this leave auditors? What is their role? Because they're there to say that the position expressed in the financial statements is true and fair. And what role do they play in saying that they are appropriate values for the investments in the financial statements and whether that should lead on to some future prediction? It's actually a really interesting scenario because we have always said auditors have no say around the investment strategy of the fund and they cannot give an opinion on what that investment strategy is. Their role was to determine whether or not the trustees had actually complied with their investment strategy. And are the accounts correct? And are the accounts correct? But here's a scenario where really the, the crux of it was that the, the auditors did not identify to the trustees the nature of those investments and alert them to the fact that they were unsecured loans as opposed to anything else. And in fact, the, the accounts potentially hadn't labelled them correctly. So is that the auditor's fault? I, I question whether or not that's truly the auditor's role. But in practical terms, what does this mean for everybody out there? Um, is you can expect your auditor to be asking a lot more questions now. You can expect your auditor to be engaging directly with the trustees rather than via their accountants or referral sources uh, and so on. And you can expect that they will... Um, not accept some potentially some valuations that they might previously have allowed through uh, through the system. So uh, you know that upshot is the auditors will just be all over it this from now on. Could we expect increased audit fees? Potentially, yes. And yes. maybe the ones at what I would call the normal market value rates maybe won't change. But I'm thinking of the, the much cheaper audit fees. We see a couple of hundred dollars or three hundred dollars for an audit, which really doesn't strike me as it's, being enough. It's, it's always been the question is that how much do you charge to open a file uh, and whether or not these low fees, some of these low fees will actually cut it in terms uh, of a proper audit. Having said that, there are some great auditors out there doing some marvellous things with automation um, and, I, and I think they, they can be charging less fees because they you know, have these automated processes in place but nevertheless they're still going to be asking for the evidence and nothing can replace that. Uh, and that engagement, as I said, that engagement with the trustee, whereas typically the auditor will deal with the referral source, the accountant referring it to, but now there's a lot of those documents and letters and so forth and management letters and re auditor's report we're going directly to trustees. Just to throw something futuristic in here, and I've had a separate podcast with Alan Fitzgerald where we talked about artificial intelligence and what the future might look like. Blockchain, there is talk about how this is going to impact on, in particular, auditors because blockchain is all about verified data where you don't need to have it separately verified or checked because you know it to be correct. And I'm just wondering about the scope of applying blockchain technology, um, if and when it comes and what it looks like in this context, um, where auditors may not need to request information because they'll be able to go to some sort of ledger that will have it all there and they won't need to verify it. I look, to be honest with you, at times like this, I'm glad I'm not an auditor. I, I would hate to be in their shoes at the moment with all those issues around blockchain and so forth. I don't, look, I don't pretend to understand Nor do I. cryptocurrency and so on, but I'm glad I'm not an auditor when it comes to it. I'm just suggesting maybe in the future the way audits are conducted and, and the way information is provided yeah. to auditors could well alter. Um, look, I, I think that's the... The thing we've seen for many, many years, isn't it? What will the next twenty years look like? What you know? What will audit? What will accounting? Which is the profession more broadly? That's it. Just Absolutely. Not just audit. Yeah, indeed. Yes. Liz, any final comments? No. Look, I, I think um, you know we're in a changing world. Um, I would love to see people being more engaged with their their super, and certainly that's my role is to try and keep my clients engaged with their with their super. But other than that, um, the message of the government is please no more tinkering with our super. <laughs> let's consolidate. Let us get on with it. Catch and, our breath. And catch our breath and let's just save for our retirement. Absolutely. Liz, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, You'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.
Thank you, Liz. That was super.